Well, it'd be great if you could have that Bible reading open from Daniel chapter 3. Thanks, Rosie, for reading. As we continue in our series in Daniel together. It's a big chapter, a lot of ground to cover, so let's ask God to help us with this. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have made yourself known to us, and we pray that as we look at this passage today, that you'll be helping us uh, clear our minds, clear our thoughts, and help us to focus in, and may your spirit be at work in our hearts, transforming us to be more like your son, Jesus. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So, welcome back to Babylon. So far in Daniel, these four teenage boys, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, have been taken from their homeland in Israel and placed into Babylon. Uh, They've been placed into Babylon Culture University. Uh, They've gotten nice and healthy off their vegetables. Uh, They've been promoted into the king's service. And they've also been faced being killed, possibly, last week. Uh, They were promoted even more into the king's service. Uh, Daniel essentially becomes the prime minister or the king's right-hand man of the land, and his mates are in the king's cabinet of sorts. It's all looking pretty good, isn't it? God has been at work in his sovereignty, placing his people exactly where he wants them, preserving them, and these men have been faithful to him. Uh, Even having their names changed to these Babylonian names uh, didn't change who they were or who they belonged to. Uh, But today, today we see another curveball. They're going to be faced with quite a simple proposal, but one with dire consequences. And this is it. Uh, Bow down to another god or an image or die in the blazing furnace. Submit to worshipping another god and live, or refuse and to continue to worship only Yahweh alone and burn. It's quite the bleak picture, isn't it? But as we'll see today, Worshipping and bowing down to other gods is useless because there is only one true God, and that is Yahweh. And that even through these trials and temptations that we may face, He is with us right up to and right through death itself. So let's look at this together. Look with me from chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So, the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates and all other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. All the head honchos are there. Uh, Now, it appears that Nebuchadnezzar really liked the idea of a big statue that he saw in the dream last week, because what do we see this week? We see him building a very big statue. 
a big, mighty statue that couldn't be missed. It was probably about nine stories tall, or about 30 meters high, and about three meters wide. It was either made of gold or plated with gold so that it shone out, so that it glistened and reflected the sunlight. Uh, Now, the Statue of Liberty in New York City, uh, from its heel to the top of its head, is roughly the same size. Uh, I have never been to New York City. I hope that one day I will be able to. Uh, But you can pick it up on the city skyline pretty easily, even amongst the skyscrapers around it, and even with its copper skin. Now, imagine a statue of this size, but all shiny gold-plated, before the days of large skyscrapers, in the middle of the desert, you couldn't miss it. It was a monument to the power, the strength, the authority of King Nebuchadnezzar. This was him putting his foot down, stamping his feet and saying, I am the greatest. He wanted to unify the nation, which had other foreigners in it around his power, and he didn't want them to forget it. Uh, Just in case we forget this as readers, we are reminded six times in these first verses, six times that Nebuchadnezzar set up this statue, we get the phrase, he set up that King Nebuchadnezzar set up, that he set up six times. The repetition is in there for a reason. We are to take notice that this statue was set up by human hands and was a sign of the king's attempt to play God. And to make sure that the whole nation knows, King Nebuchadnezzar forces the whole nation to bow down if they hear the music playing But, verse 6, whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. It's a game of musical statues, almost. Notice that they aren't expecting like a full-on devotion to this new image. Just the outward show of conformity and submission to the authority of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, in a polytheistic society like Babylon was with many gods, uh, this wouldn't have been a problem for many of the other nations. Even in our modern society, the idea of worshipping many gods rather than just one may be applauded as being inclusive. But this proves a dilemma for those who are part of God's people because the first and the second commandment forbids such things. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, says that they shall not have any other gods before Yahweh and that they shall not make a carved image or any likeness of God and bow down to them. Because our God is the one and the only God. He is a jealous God and His people aren't to be worshipping any other gods. So then, on the flatlands of Jura. Music plays, and then thousands and thousands and thousands of people bow down to worship the image. That is except three. Three people stay standing among the crowd. Three people would rather go to the furnace than worshipping the statue. 
Look with me from chapter 3, verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods neither worship the image of gold that you have set up. Now then, what caused the astrologers to dob in our mates? Uh, we don't really know, but they're actually quite smart in how they went about it. Uh, if you notice, they laid out what Nebuchadnezzar had set out, and then they appealed to his huge ego by claiming that the Jews paid no attention to him, and that they didn't worship the idol, that, just in case we hadn't gotten the point four times earlier, King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The result? Nebuchadnezzar is furious. Uh, this isn't just a woke up too early or woke up on the wrong side of the bed and hadn't had my coffee yet angry. This is white hot rage because he wasn't obeyed. He was used to being obeyed. So then he brings them to himself and asks them almost in disbelief that they did this thing and he gives them a second chance. But he wraps up his speech in verse 17. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? He thinks he is the best thing since sliced bread. He is arrogant, boastful. He's acting all high and mighty. He's putting himself against Yahweh. So here we have the mortal, human, insecure King Nebuchadnezzar versus the one and the only, the great I Am, the creator of all things. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they have a choice. While standing before the king of Babylon, with the glow and the heat of the fiery furnace right in their minds, they've got a choice. Will they obey Nebuchadnezzar and live their lives? Or will they obey Yahweh and be thrown into the furnace? Will they obey and conform to the patterns of the world? Or will they stick with God? Will they choose the side of the created things? Or the side of the creator of all things? We'll be right back after this short message. Because you may be thinking, Michael... This is all well and good, but last time I checked, we don't have a nine-story-high statue in the centre of town, nor are we being threatened with death unless we bow down to it. So what has this got to do with us? Uh, well, you're correct. Unless something radical has happened in the past 12 hours since I've last been in the city, uh, there is no statue and there's no blazing furnace, and I don't think there are any council plans for that. 
But there are other things that the world may try to convince us of or pressure us into. Our various front lines, where we are throughout the week, look so different, but I'm pretty sure that in some way, the world is telling us to conform or risk the consequences. That is, think in this way. Believe this thing. Wear this item. Or risk ostracism, derision, or bullying. Uh, on the flip side, it may be trying to lure us in. Uh, get this thing. Spend Sunday morning in this way. Uh, spend Friday and Saturday nights out. Or be on the right side of history. And gain a following. Be popular. Gain kudos. See, our worldly gods in 21st century Australia may not be as blatantly obvious as a nine-story high statue, but they're just as real. Whether it's our careers, whether it's financial and housing security, whether it's our children, or at the heart of it, it's most probably ourselves. The list goes on. And so we should keep alert. And as we'll see later, keep on pressing into God. But also, for some of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world, it's important to remember that it is quite literally recant your Christian belief or die. That's the situation for a lot of people. Uh, but for now, back to Babylon. I have good news and I have bad news. Uh, the good news is that our three mates refused to bow down to the statue. The bad news is that King Nebuchadnezzar was more furious than before. Uh, they stood firm in the confidence of God's authority no matter the outcome. Uh, they said in verse 16 that they did not need to defend themselves at all. Uh, they were innocent in the eyes of the one that truly mattered. They were innocent in the eyes of God. So no matter the outcome, they still had confidence in God. They were prepared to die. And notice, uh, this isn't arrogance. Uh, this isn't pride. This isn't coming to the defense of the Lord. This isn't a loud picketed protest. This is simple, quiet confidence in the authority, the sovereignty, power, supremacy of the Lord. In the question of who to follow, they decided to follow the Lord. They decided to stay on God's side. They decided that the Lord's will was to be done, not their own even if it meant the furnace. So the great king got even angrier because they wouldn't bow down to his authority. And guess what? When we won't live for or live as part of the world, we shouldn't be surprised if the world follows suit. 
It's been happening for millenniums. Right now, we are coming off the back of a rare time in the history of God's people where there wasn't persecution, but rather there was favour for being a churchgoer. But now, as things get more increasingly difficult, we're resuming normal programming. Things are only going to get harder. But in the face of this, we don't need to panic, but simply have confidence in and follow the one who has overcome the world. The one who calls us to take up our cross and to follow him. So then, it's to the furnace for our three mates. Now, as Australians, we can be pretty relaxed about some things, maybe even too relaxed. Uh, so if you go down to Bunnings right now, I'm sure that you'll see someone loading some timber onto their roof racks, tying them down with some random knot that they found on YouTube about five minutes earlier, tugging it and saying, she'll be right, mate. There's no way these things are moving. Nebuchadnezzar did not have a she'll be right, mate, attitude towards them. He did everything in his power to make sure that these three blokes died. Notice, he ordered that the furnace be heated up seven times more than usual. Then, he had them tied up, not just by anyone, but by the strongest men in the army. Then they were thrown into the fire wearing all their flannel robes, clothes, and into it they fell. Helpless. Nebuchadnezzar's probably thinking, there's no way these blokes are coming out of this alive. However, God had other plans. There was a big surprise. The men that obeyed the king by taking the men into the fire died. Do you notice that? But the three men that disobeyed the king survived. In fact, they were joined by another being. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was probably thinking that he should have gone to Specsavers, but he wasn't seeing things in verse 24. Look with me. Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. He had done everything in his power to off these blokes. But it was no match for the power of the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar had tried to show off his authority and his strength and his might. But his attempts could not compare to the total authority of the Lord. Now, who the person is who joined them in the fire, uh, a lot of people have discussed this. There's been a lot of inks spilt. Uh, it doesn't really matter. It was probably an angel of some sorts. Uh, but the point is, is that God is with his people. <laughs> Amongst trials and temptations, God is with us. He's not, he's not simply standing at a distance, just calling the shots. No, he is with us. He has come to us in Jesus. He is with us now by his Holy Spirit. Even up to and through death itself. So then, Nebuchadnezzar calls them out of the fire. All the big honchos in Babylon have a good old look at them. 
They even have a good old sniff. But there was no skerrick of evidence that they'd been near a fire, let alone in one. There's no smell, no singed eyebrows, completely clean, totally safe. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar tried to kill them, but the Lord said, No, you're not. Not today. I'm going to preserve these people. Yahweh has complete and total authority, which leads to a bit of a surprising result. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's plan had failed. Uh, The power that he tried to show off in the statue and the furnace was like somebody trying to demonstrate that they could tear down this whole building using their bare hands. Useless. And he recognizes this. He even praises Yahweh. He puts up protection against anyone who spoke up against Yahweh. Uh, It's certainly a helpful step for the Jews in Babylon. However, uh, just like last week, does Nebuchadnezzar come to a place of repentance and belief and come to worship God alone? Doesn't look like it. It appears that he's a big fan of the Lord. He's a big fan. He, he likes him. Uh, last week we saw it in chapter 227. He says that Daniel's God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. Uh, in 328 he says, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, for no other God can save in this way. He's a big fan. He says, Go you guys. But he doesn't appear to repent. He fails to acknowledge that God is really the true king is. He doesn't realize the reality of the situation. And that reality is that, well, no power in heaven and on earth can compare to the power and the authority of our God. No worldly government, ruler, No boss, no co-worker can compare to the totality of our God. And not one thing on earth or in heaven can take us from his hand. Not one thing can separate us from his love. And we can have full assurance of this in Jesus' death and resurrection. That he has brought us back into relationship with God. That we are safe with him. Now, this doesn't mean that we won't face hardship or trials. In fact, Jesus tells us to be prepared for more trials and more persecution because of him. But it does mean that through these things, and even through death, our future is secure. Our eternal home has settled. Our comfort now is real. See, our world may say that this is all there is. Our world may tell us to bow down and conform or else face these consequences. 
But this is what Jesus, God's only Son, God in flesh, says in John 16, 33, after warning His disciples of such things. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. So then, in the face of a growingly hostile, pressuring world, stick with Jesus. In the face of derision, exclusion, being overlooked, even by close family and friends causing heartbreak, take comfort in Jesus. In the face of physical persecution, and even in the face of death, hold on to eternal life in Jesus. He is the one true King, with all power and authority, and He will never let you go. And it's only in Him that we can find ultimate peace, eternal comfort, and a full and assured hope. And nothing can take that away, not even death. So let's pray and ask God to help us. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you so much that you reign supreme over all things, that you are the one who is calling the shots, that you are our almighty God with all power and all authority and all loving. Lord, help us in amongst this world to remain in you, to have the confidence of being in relationship with you, to having the confidence that we can have in the gospel. And so help us this week to take this with us. Help us this week to remember that you will hold us fast. And so we pray this in your name. Amen.